When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I am joined today by my guest, Jessica Lipsky. Jessica is a journalist and DJ from Brooklyn, New York. Her writing on the intersection of culture, music, and politics has appeared in the New York Times, NPR, Billboard, Vice, Newsweek, and many other publications. Jessica's latest book is It Ain't Retro, Daptone Records and the 21st Century Soul Revolution, and is published by Jawbone Press. Jessica, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Please share with us what your book is about. Sure. Um, My book is a biography of Daptone Records, which I argue is one of the most important recording houses in a generation. And they are the progenitors, maybe not quite progenitors, but um, the leaders of a soul revival. That is people who um, are putting out 60s and 70s style funk and soul music. That's through the likes of Sharon Jones and the Kings, Charles Bradley, and many others. And It Ain't Retro is a biography of the label as well as the larger funk and soul scene that um, they help lead and that's sprouted around them. How would you describe the Daptone Records sound? I would say that Daptone Records uh, has had an evolution in sound. They started off as shitty but pretty in their early days and have become this perfectly imperfect sound um, that adores the production of the 60s and 70s where everything um, was analog, was focused on drums, vocals, and really, really killer horns. You begin your book by introducing us to the Daptone Records label uh, through the Daptone Super Soul Review at the Apollo Theater, which was a very significant event that kind of cemented I think at that time, their legacy already. And if, if anyone out there has not seen video footage of the uh, performances at the Apollo Theater, it's amazing. Uh, share with us what the review was and what was the uh, cultural significance of it. Absolutely. So the Daptone Super Soul Review happened over a couple of nights in 2014 at the Apollo Theater in Harlem, which if anyone knows anything about soul music is a very important place. Um, 
And at this point, Daptone had been around for well over a decade, and before that was putting out similar music as Desco Records. Um, and this was a chance to do a review of all of their music, all of their musicians on an amazing hometown stage, and also um, a showcase for Sharon Jones, who at that point um, had survived a bout of cancer and had come back roaring. So um, to be able to play on the same stage as James Brown, one of their major, major influences, was huge for them. Um, and totally sold out. Um, I was living in California at the time, which is where I'm from, and I remember thinking, man, I should get a ticket out to see this, right? I should go, right? And I never did, and I deeply regret that. <laughs> well, have you seen other performances uh, from Daptone artists? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there was a great documentary um, about the Apollo show called Living on Soul, the family Daptone. Um, I would also have no doubt that at some point Daptone will put out its own um, documentary or like series of, of videos from that. They shot a lot of footage. I really hope so. So Daptone Records was founded by Bosco Mann, whose uh, government name is Gabriel Roth. <laughs> That's what you say in your book. And I, I thought that was so funny. Um, but before Daptone Records, you mentioned there was Desco Records, and Bosco had founded that with his partner, Philippe Lehman. Um, who are who are Bosco and Philippe, and what were their backgrounds? Um, both of these guys are record heads. Um, Bosco, a.k.a. Gabe Roth, um, is a Jewish guy from Riverside, California, who made his way to New York for school and had always had this fascination with record collecting and with soul music. Um, he was going to college, playing in bands, and encountered Phil Lehman um, out in the world of record nerds. Um, the two of them had this shared passion for really dirty, gritty, uh, fucked up funk records. And they decided that they needed to start something around that because at the time that style of music wasn't really popular um, in New York where they were based or elsewhere, really. And I wouldn't just add um, just popular, but there's an uh, accessibility element as as well. I you know in our correspondence before this interview, I discovered Daptone Records via Sharon Jones in 2007 with uh, her album 100 Days, 100 Nights. I fortunately was going to a a, a a town. Uh, I was going to college in a town that had a small independent record shop that had that, but nowhere else that I, you know, imagine that anywhere else in Kentucky or in some of the surrounding states in Midwest would have that kind of stuff. So even before that, you know, at the end of the nineties, when, um, uh, Gabe and Philippe are doing their Desco thing, would I ever imagine I could have access to that kind of stuff. So that's, that's, that's incredible that there were those scenes for that. You say in your book that Desco Records was a musical innovation that sounded like a blast from the past, but was created in the shadow of a new millennium. Where was soul music before Desco's founding? Good question. Um, Soul music was sort of relegated to the world of oldies, right? You could hear a lot of the sounds of the 60s and 70s on oldies radio, as I I definitely did growing up. Um, But it was sort of has been. R&B and hip-hop were taking flight. Um, And you had really innovative musicians who were picking from that same well, but it wasn't really in popular consciousness. Like James Brown, um, you know, was coming off like a 
few really bad years of addiction and doing commercials and um, all of these other performers from the 60s were you know, playing gigs at um, small bars every so often, but they weren't necessarily um, revered by the public in the same way. From what I understand, it was sort of an afterthought, like these guys are has-beens um, and we are standing on their shoulders, but you know, we're not actively engaging with their catalogs. And that's kind of amazing. Um that you explore that because you discuss a lot of these scenes um, in the early days of Daptone or even uh, during Desco and before where soul was kind of, um, it was utilized, uh, you know, for example, uh, the New York music scene was largely dominated by hip hop and indie rock, but there was a small subculture. A lot of it involved um, sampling. Uh, Can you talk about that and uh, what was happening to soul underground during that time? Absolutely. So, uh, as you said, um, the New York scene was largely hip hop related uh, or focused. And you have people who were really working their way through that scene that today are major players in funk and soul, like Mark Ronson, like Questlove, um, um, like um, uh, Pharrell, for example, um, as well. And Within the underground, there are people who are collectors and DJs, and this happens from the mid-80s with the Empire State Soul Club um, through to the late 90s um, when you have people like um, Chairman Mao um, and um, and, uh, DJs Frankie and Glacey who are performing these sort of like deep cuts um, to dancers and working them in, in a way that today would make sense for like uh, the average listener. He'd say, yes, I know that um, hip hop came from these samples. And even then people would know, but wouldn't necessarily hear them together at the average club. And Bosco and Philippe, they were around the scenes at at this time, exploring this music. What were they taking from that kind of experience from the subculture and how do they want to grow that? What was the, I guess, philosophy of their vision for this music? Well, Lehman, I'm I'm not so sure what his philosophy was. He seems to be this sort of like avant-garde, um, wealthy guy who is just like interested in doing what was not popular, what was just interesting to him. Um, Gabe, I think, um, was in and around these cultures and just took the, um, the raw joy that people uh, felt, that people you know, visually put off at clubs um, when they heard this music. And to him, I think it was a bit, um, gosh, what's the word? It was a bit affirming um, of his own taste, though, as you might get from reading this book, I don't think Gabe really needs anybody to affirm his taste because he knows it's good. Um, and this was, you know, brought further into the foray, into the foray as, um, as he did the show across 110th Street um, on um, WKCR, which is still on today. So further exploring New York City and the soul subculture, you write that uh, the city's politics were causing a social shift around this time with then-Mayor Rudy Giuliani's focus on crime control and urban renewal. How did that have an impact on the subculture of soul music, and how were people responding to that? I don't think that it had too much of a 
direct impact on, impact on soul music, with the exception of the fact that it became a bit harder to find records literally on the street because uh, people have recounted just walking anywhere and people were bending constantly. Um, I think the greater effect that it had was people sort of shifted out of Manhattan, which for many, many years was the cultural center of New York City. It pushed them to Brooklyn where people could do whatever they wanted, where there were warehouse parties, where there was more space for bands to, to practice. Um, I think that um, the 90s also probably helped um, you know, more artists come into the city and you know, imbue it with that additional sense of creativity from outside places. Um, Anybody who lives in New York knows that it's kind of rare to find a native New Yorker. So um, those additional voices and perspectives and talents from other places um, are, are helpful, which is not to say that Daptone isn't made up of native New Yorkers too. Yeah, let's talk about some of those other places. Um, you discussed that around the same time Soul was growing in New York, Soul had already been a major fixture in Los Angeles for at least two generations. Uh, so tell us about the scene from, your, from where you're from and how did Daptone sound fit in with that? Sure. So I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, um, and I grew up listening to a lot of oldies from the station that was formerly known as KSAN or KFRC. Um or and KFRC, excuse me, um, and also a oldies program um, on 98.1 KISS FM called the Sunday Super Oldies. So that was a big part of my education growing up and where I found out about a lot of Motown and Stax records and other smaller labels. Um, and that exists in the Bay Area, but in Los Angeles, um, that same tradition um, I think is multiplied. Um, lots of generations, particularly um, you know, Latinos, Chicanos, um, other people who just like oldies, uh, grew up listening to these records, calling into programs by, um, run by Art Laveau um, and passing these like love songs down generation by generation. And it didn't really matter that it wasn't popular on the radio. It didn't matter if maybe you had a different lifestyle than your parents. There are these like connecting things that are songs, you know, through families and ways that you tell stories. So um, I think that that love of old 60s music really primed people in Southern California for downtown sounds. So it's, it's interesting when we talk about how this music kind of found an audience through DJs and clubs and the subculture and all this is pre-internet and it's having an effect on how people kind of kind of perceive perceive the music and one story you tell in your book about the early days of these labels is how gabe bosco was fooled by a band uh called the poets of rhythm thinking they were black when they were actually a group of white germans and even going as far as referring to them as german james browns um how did experiences like that and those kind of sounds impact their connection with soul and their thinking of soul and just how widespread and accessible it could be to a lot of different people? Well, I think if you come from any sort of subculture, before you find your tribe, you're really like, am I the only person in the world that likes this music? Am I just really weird? 
Who can I find? How can I share this? And I think for for Bosco and for others, hearing people like hearing bands like Poets of Rhythm um, really blew their mind. It proved to them there were other people out there that were into the same things. So the Poets of Rhythm proved they were a test case that modern people could make music in a 60s and 70s style. And being able to see that, to hear that, um, I don't think they actually saw them live, um, was crucial. And it would follow that later Daptone would put out records by the Poets of Rhythm. So why did Desco Records dissolve? Um, creative differences, uh, probably financial differences that other people don't feel like disclosing. Um, but it sort of went as far as they could go, I think. Um, Phil wanted to do one thing, Gabe wanted to do another. And at this sort of really poetic time, the dawn of the new millennium, they decide to part ways after having this great trip to um, to Barcelona where the Dap Kings really formed. So I, I think that, um, that Phil Lehman wanted to have less of a hands-on approach with his records and Bosco Mann, who is a very particular individual, um, wanted to have a lot of creative influence on his. Um, there were also a series of, of deals gone wrong um, that had nothing to do with the partners that I think influenced um, Gabe's desire to do his own thing. Deals going wrong in the music industry is a story as old as time. So Daptone came into being at a sort of auspicious time in the music industry where there were so many changes happening with the dissolution of labels, with the advent of streaming, um, with CDs and MP3s and all of these changes happening. So the fact that the label was able to really make it through as an independent organization um, really just speaks to their determination, their love of the music, and the caliber of musicianship. So after Desco dissolved, Gabe founded Daptone Records in 2001 um, with a person named Neil Sugarman. Who was Neil and what was uh, his journey toward founding Daptone with Gabe? So Neil was uh, the leader of the Sugarman Three, which is one of the Desco groups that recorded a lot at the 41st Street studio. Um, and he and Gabe had developed a good relationship. He was doing a lot of the management of his band. And when Desco ended and Gabe had these offers to do different records, but wasn't really into anything, um, Neil was having the same issues. And they developed this sort of well, if you make them, I'll sling them partnership, where Neil did a lot of the marketing work from his various apartments in Brooklyn, and Gabe would be the sort of uh, creative glue. And over the years, they continued in that path of you know business and creativity with Neil playing in the Sugarman Three and also in Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. So we were talking earlier about a lot of the changes that were happening in the music industry, primarily because of technology. You had uh, the internet, which brought in the advent of 
streaming in the form of um, piracy downloading. Napster was a big thing. And I know that a lot of artists and the industry were trying to wrestle with what this meant uh, for the industry in terms of monetization of music uh, on the internet. I know David Bowie famously tried to release an album in 2001 on the internet, didn't quite work out, came out two decades later. But what's fascinating about Daptone is that um, very early on, it was just all vinyl. And I want to get a sense of what um, their business decisions were like at that time when the industry is so changing by really committing to this revivalist mentality, not just with the sound, but of a business model as well. And it's really interesting, too, because even though they were so insistent on vinyl, that didn't really work for them initially. Um, I tell a few stories in my book of how they would go out with these brand new Lee Fields records, the first things he had recorded in decades, but no record store wanted them because they were new, because everybody had this idea that modern funk was terrible. And even people who were in funk wouldn't listen to modern funk. So they would have to go back, scratch up these records, make them look old, and then can finally sell them. So even though they knew they were making records for other collectors and fans, there was still a bit of a schism in how that would actually make money. And it took them years to turn a profit, for sure. I think that their insistence on this Final production, uh, final distribution, um, and although they, of course, do have things on the internet um, and various streaming services, um, their insistence on that really was just them holding on to um, their core values and showing people, well, you know, we have this physical medium that you can buy at our shows, and we are touring so hard, and people want to play that um, that medium, of course their insistence on using vinyl as the primary means of musical distribution or or audio distribution rather um, was really way ahead of the game. And we've seen vinyl um, surge in sales over the past few years. Absolutely. And that's not to say that the uh, team at Daptone were were ludites of, um, because they, they weren't, even though they were committing to very early on this vinyl uh, they had the Daptone Super uh, Super Store. I can't. I can never remember this. The Daptone Records Super Store. Super Store. Super Store. Yeah, we go. And so they they were had that um, you know, really early on. And I remember when I first heard about Daptone Records, and I was producing, hosting a soul music show in college. I was connecting with their PR people on MySpace, so they were active. You know, very early on in the Wild West days of social media. So it was interesting to kind of just experience that convergence of this label so committed to a retro style and format, but try to traverse the landscape of the internet when so many people with a lot more money and a lot more ideas and a lot more resources are trying to do the exact same thing as well. That's that's a, a really good point. And I mean, there are very committed people behind the scenes who are doing social media, who are doing their marketing, um, but they definitely don't have an apparatus behind them. To pivot just a, a bit, um, this dedication isn't just specific to Daptone. For example, Coal Mine Records, who came about a decade after, um, 
their founder, Terry Cole, is so big into indie retail, he would literally drive to record stores in his beat up car and meet with people in person. And his entire business is based on indie retail. So I think that this shows that like begets like. And if you're really searching for something now that we have the tools um, easily accessible, uh, you will find what you're looking for. Or maybe... I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I mean, or, or maybe as, as with you and with me, we share this, uh, this background, you'll happen across a CD or a record at your college radio station. Absolutely. I, it's, uh, it's incredible what they were able to do. And they had such really rough days. I know early on, they, they bought that townhouse in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that was practically torn apart. Uh, and they even had some of the, um, stars on their label, like Charles Bradley and Sharon Jones kind of gut rehab and put it together. A lot of uh, lean years, those early years. So share with us what those early days at Daptone was like and some of the challenges they faced. Sure. Well, first, they didn't own this building. They just rented it from a slumlord um, in the grand tradition of uh, New York uh, tenancy. Um, So they moved into this neighborhood that now has been gentrified, but at the time definitely wasn't. And they get into this busted old house and somebody somewhere has a brilliant vision for it. So they start breaking down walls, um, finding tires from various places and isolating the, um, the vocal room, stuffing the top, like floating it on top of the tires, stuffing those tires with, with rags. Gabe uh, buys a bunch of fabric at a discount from an old theater store and sends it to his mother in California so she can sew him sound dampening curtain, curtains for the live room. Um, the storage on the second floor of the, um, of the House of Soul also doubles as a kitchen. And um, they tried to remove walls. They realized that those were load-bearing, and they had to jack them up again using like a car jack. Um, all of the guys from the Budos band, who if anyone knows anything about the Budos band, are super metal and probably really into any kind of destruction, um, especially if it is constructive destruction. Uh, they, you know, knocked down walls and then hauled all of these bags of trash to a friendly dump in Staten Island, and you know it. it you can only imagine what sort of community and family building scene that must have been um, to really literally build something from the ground up. So we've mentioned a couple of artists on the Daptone label already. And of course, the one we have to discuss the most, or not even the most, but the, 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 the label's Big major star is Sharon Jones. She came on the scene uh, in their uh, community on in when back when it was Desco, uh, performing backing vocals on Lee Field's song uh, "Let a Man Do What He Want to Do," and she would eventually become the first major star. Um, but she had a rough background. Uh, can you tell us where she came from, what her background was, and how she became involved with Daptone Records? Absolutely. So Sharon Jones is from um, the same area as James Brown in North Augusta, South Carolina, and moved to Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, just a little ways from where I am now um, as a child. And um, she grew up in the 60s at a you know complicated time for America, for Black people, also a very exciting time. And 
sang her whole life. She sang in her church choir, which is the foundation of, um, I think, her vocal training, um, and ended up becoming choir director at a very young age. Um, and even though she had all of this talent and a whole lot of personality and drive, Sharon never made it in the music business in a traditional sense. She did some backing vocals. She sang in a wedding band. She was on some house tracks, but she was never a full-time musician until her 40s and 50s. Um, she worked at as a prison guard at Rikers Island, which is a pretty infamous prison in New York. I later learned that she and my mother worked there at the same time, but they didn't know each other. Um, that would have been way too cool. Um, she worked for Macy's. She worked as an armored car um, uh, guard. And all the while is still maintaining this passion for music. So in the 90s, when... Um, Gabe Roth is recording Lee Fields, um, he is looking for some backup singers. And one of his musicians is like, oh yeah, my girlfriend knows somebody. So they're supposed to bring in three women the next day for backing vocals. And Sharon Jones is the one that walks through the door and insists, why pay three people when you can just pay play me? Pay, oh, Jesus. <laughs> why pay three people when you can just pay me? And then she proceeded to blow them out of the water. And I think that there was a little bit of skepticism and a healthy amount of skepticism uh, between the parties. She was thinking, who are all these young white guys who are doing soul? And they're wondering, like, who is this woman? Why does she want to sing with us? Can she really bring enough for three people? And she definitely did. So Sharon came into the fold pretty quickly. And I think there was a deep love and admiration there. And it lasted from probably the day they met until the day she died. She had been told long throughout her career um, that she wasn't made for music because she was too fat, too black, and too old. And she internalized these negative comments to push herself throughout her career. Um, tell us about the early years when Sharon was beginning to grow a following and what it did for the label, how Sharon was able to be the glue that held Daptone together and how their relationship evolved. Well, to anybody that has heard a Sharon Jones record, there is just such vibrancy, such energy. Um, you can't sit down and listen to her sing. Um, so to see Sharon Jones is like that, but to the nth degree. Um, and Daptone really realized that Sharon had this performing power early on. She was, she had great stage presence. She knew how to dance. She would dress well, especially later on. Um, and she really knew how to engage the audience. So they realized people could see Sharon perform they would want to buy records. They would come back. They would tell their friends. So Daptone with Sharon hit the road really hard on a lot of cross-country tours, on several European tours. And as they're performing, they're honing their, um, their skills, their camaraderie, and developing the sound of what would become Sharon Jones and Daptones. So Sharon's... Um, Sharon's skill, her passion, and like her effervescence um, were absolutely integral 
to the creation of the Daptone sound and to its success. I think without Sharon, there would be no Daptone as we know it. I absolutely agree. Uh, so a major break for Daptone, and I would say probably their first biggest break, came in 2006 when their house band, the Dap Kings, collaborated with Mark Ronson for Amy Winehouse's album Back to Black. How did that co- collaboration come about, and what did the success of the album do for Daptone? Musicians get around, <laughs> uh, right? So even though maybe even though Neil Sugarman and Gabe Roth weren't going to Mark Ronson's DJ gigs or to his studio necessarily, some of their musicians definitely were. And the story goes that trumpet player Dave Guy, who is now a member of The Roots, um, brought a demo tape to Mark Ronson. And Ronson was already working with Amy Winehouse, uh, trying to develop her second record, make it less jazzy, but he couldn't quite figure out how to do so said he used every studio trick in the book and it still wasn't vibing. So he plays her a Daptone or Dap Kings demo and she loves it. So he set up some studio time and Amy wasn't there for the majority of the tracks that the Dap Kings recorded for Back to Black, but they are absolutely integral to her sound, to the sound of that album. So depending on who you talk to, Amy Winehouse had a enormous influence on the label or it did nothing for them. Didn't gain them any new fans. Bosco would probably say that the average listener doesn't know and really doesn't care that the Dap Kings backed her on this very, very popular album and one that I would say brought soul music or soul revival into the mainstream. But some of the musicians uh, you know, really thought the gig was great. It was a wonderful chance for them to work with this producer. It was their first big money gig. Um, and it also led to very, very fruitful collaborations with some of them. Um, for example, Tom Brennick, um, guitarist who works with Charles Bradley, with the Budos Band, with many others, developed a close working relationship with Mark Ronson and now shares a studio with him. Um, Homer Steinweiss, the drummer, is also on a lot of Mark Ronson productions. So I think this, the Amy Winehouse record did good for a variety of musicians, but more than anything, it was a situation where all boats rise with the tide. I would have to say I agree with Bosco there that um, the success of Back to Black necessarily didn't reflect upon Daptone because it's such a singer focused album and and given amy's massive talent and um her controversies at the time i am sure it was very hard to for the casual listener to kind of pay attention to the other details of what's happening i personally believe that 100 days 100 nights that we had discussed earlier and that was released in 2007 was the first big like milestone album for that label and kind of set them on this on the success from there. What's your perception on that? Oh, I absolutely agree. And I think that, I think that um, people who do care to make these connections, journalists, radio people might have been more inclined to play 
uh, Dap King's record or Dap Tom record rather, um, after knowing that Amy Winehouse is somehow involved. But I think that 100 Days, 100 Nights, a great album, also the first album that I heard from the Dap Kings, um, I think that would have stood on its own regardless. They had been working so hard by that point, and it was their third album out. So after all of these releases, after all of these road miles, after all of these amazing shows, that record is so damn good that even if Amy Winehouse were out of the picture, I think they still would have been successful. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Who were some of the other artists on Daptone Records during that first decade? Absolutely. So although Sharon is the shining light, there are lots of other projects. For example, there are the Mighty Imperials, and that includes the drummer Homer Steinweiss, who I mentioned earlier. This was a teenage hard funk group um, that was um, sort of in the in the periphery of, of the Desco days, for sure. Um, actually, they were a Desco band and um, only released their records once Daptone came into existence. You also had a group, Antibalis, a sort of Afrobeat flip to the funk that they were putting out on Daptone, often with a lot of the same players. Um, There were the Sugarman Three, as I mentioned before, and a host of of other folks. Um, I'm trying to... Forgetting somebody major. Um, well, I guess I guess within the first decade too, you had the Budos band, who were some members of Mighty Imperials as well, and the sort of 0.5 generation of Daptone guys who sort of came up listening to them, maybe sneaking into their shows uh, in Manhattan when they were underage. Um, you had Lee Fields, who was crucial to the germination of this whole thing. And then, obviously, later, you get Charles Bradley. And his contribution cannot be understated either. Absolutely not. And if you want an overview of the kinds of artists and sounds from that first decade of Daptone Records, I got two places, two uh, albums for you to check out. There's Daptone Gold, which was the first compilation that covers like the first 10 years. Absolutely amazing. And then um, there was this random sampler CD that was curated by Scion, the the, uh, the car from Toyota that was all it was just like remixes. It has like really great uh, remixes of like classic Daptone songs, like um, How Long Do I Have to Wait for You has a fantastic remix that I love better than the studio version. So for listeners out there, Daptone Gold in the Scion CD sampler, if you could find that, are going to be your best entry points into the first decade of Daptone. It's funny that you should mention this Scion sampler, actually, because the Scion sampler was great for Daptone, but also really good for other funk and soul artists across the country. And it sort of helped them meet the 
contemporary hip hop acts that were invested, interested in the same roots that they were. So, for example, um, Orgone, um, a like funk and boogie band in um, in Southern California, they were put onto this compilation. I think we're talking about the same one, or perhaps it was a series. Yeah, um, and. Same thing happened with Connie Price and the Keystones, also a Southern California band. And there's a number of other people who were put on like a Scion tour as well, opening for these contemporary hip hop acts. Are you, are you not seeing that on your compilation? Um, no, I am. I was, I'm looking, okay. I'm actually looking at it right now and I see like Wale, uh, Kenny Dope, um, a large professor, which I'm not familiar with, but um, it, it's so it's, it's it's such a fun it's such a fun CD. Yeah, I, I agree, and I mean, and it's so weird that like Scion would do this, but hey, this was back when people had CD players in their cars, so why not? So moving on into the second decade of Daptone Records, we enter Charles Bradley who we had mentioned a few times before, released his first studio album in 2011. And like Sharon Jones, he was another Daptone artist who worked his way up and would become one of the label's biggest stars, maybe even in some ways uh, surpassing Sharon. And you talk about in your book some of, the, some of the issues there and some jealousy matters. And Charles was known for his vulnerability in singing about pain from the death of his soul. What was his background and how did he become involved with Daptone? So Charles had a particularly hard scrabble life. Um, he also came up from the South or from Florida, um, moved to Bedstein, New York, and his brother was murdered when he was a teenager, um, which had a profound impact on him. Um, he left home when he was a young teenager and was homeless for many years, um, traveled the country cooking um, for, for work, um, had bouts of homelessness. He was um, functionally illiterate most of his life and just a very, very sweet and sensitive man who I think had been beaten down by life quite a bit, but seemed to maintain this internal flame. So he was living in San Francisco for many years um, and made his way back to New York to reconcile with his mother, who was sick, moved back in with her, and was doing jobs as, an, as a handyman. Um, and no one quite knows how he found out about Daptone Records, but one day he showed up at Bosco's apartment door saying, I heard you needed a singer. Everyone thought that was really weird, <laughs> but they took his, um, took his information and later went to see him perform as a James Brown impersonator at a local bar. Now, this was something that really kept him kept, kept that flame going, kept that um, flame burning, was performing as Black Velvet. Um, and that persona was a security blanket for, um, for Charles. But when another, um, when another singer fell through for a project, they decided to hit him up. And 
Charles Bradley first recorded with Daptone in I believe 2004 with members of the Budos band. Um, nothing really came from that. They put out two singles, but it, it didn't really do much of the world of Daptone. And years later, they reconnected with him and kind of the rest is history. <laughs> so after a decade of hard work, Daptone is finally being recognized as a pioneer of the soul revival. And this is when you start seeing their influences in other areas of popular culture. I remember uh, in the theater in 2013, watching Martin Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street and Sharon Jones, uh, the Dap Kings are performing there. How was Daptone's influence being felt after this, uh, being recognized as being a pioneer? Um, well, prior to them being in Wolf of Wall Street, they also had a bunch of different placements. I remember, I remember their cover of This Land is Your Land was in that movie with George Clooney, Up in the Air, and then a song from, um, um, from 100 Days, 100 Nights was in the movie Waitress as well on a jukebox. Um, and Sharon was in the film The Great Debaters. Um, so they are out there. And I think that their influence, I mean, certainly by me, certainly I'm guessing by you and other folks like us, I think their influence was immense and it was really just exciting to be able to see this sort of music performed live and that new things are coming out. And um, anybody who's into funk and soul knows that the well is infinite and you can go back as far as you want and never learn everything that there is to know about this in terms of um, artists and labels and, um, and whatnot. But to have something that's coming out in a contemporary sense was really exciting. And as a result, you saw the creation of other bands and other labels. And this is not just in New York and it's not just in Los Angeles. Um, it is across the country, it's international. And in you know, the 2010s, there is absolutely a soul revolution um, brewing around the world. Um, and it is a beautiful thing. And we are still seeing the fruits of that today. So as Daptone was experiencing huge success throughout the 2010s, uh, their lead players, Sharon and Charles, uh, were getting older and sicker. Both would eventually pass away from cancer a few years ago. Share with us what their final years of, of performing were like. They hit it hard. Um, Sharon was prepping the release of Give the People What They Want in 2013, um, when she found out that she had cancer, um, went into a fairly intense treatment, had surgery, and was recovering for months while everything was put on hold. And when she came back in 2014, it seemed as if she had this renewed vigor. I recall seeing her at the Fillmore Auditorium in San Francisco on that, um, on that first tour back, and I wept. It was so incredible to just like see her come out, and it was as if she had like kicked cancer's ass and then kicked herself into a high gear. Um, and she stayed at that level. I think that for Sharon, um, that brush with death really made 
her playing even more important um, and made getting her message um, and her music out to the audience even more important. And the same for Daptone, who realized what the loss of this colleague and friend would mean for them personally and also for their business. Um, so that became ever more um, important and scary when Sharon's cancer came back in 2016. Um, and she pretty much, you know, played up until she was much too ill to do so and had a stroke um, the night of the 2020, uh, 2016 election. Um, Charles, as well, he had had a couple of bouts of illnesses. And um, mind you, all these people are in their 60s. Um, so Sharon was 60 when she passed, and Charles was 67. And despite all the energy that they had on stage and how much they put into touring and recording, um, death comes for us all. So Charles had had a few illnesses and um, was pretty sick in, during his last tour, but was keeping up with things. Um, he was undergoing treatment and at some point on their European tour, um, got very sick and had to be taken from a hotel on a stretcher. Um, he was convalescing. They canceled their, their touring schedule and um, things seemed to be going better. And at a certain point, he leaves for a holistic retreat in Mexico that no one really knows about. Um, and everybody at the label was asked to keep quiet about. Um, and he came back from it. Um, he had no medication. He went into hospice and he passed away. Um, now, I'm, I'm sort of jumping ahead in timeline here because there, like Sharon, was a period where Charles came back from, um, from battling cancer and was doing well. He was performing, he was touring, um, and you know, people were feeling good. He, th these were not people who were ailing musicians. Like you would not have known that until the very, very end. And to have, um, to have Charles's band tell it, like he was still strong until the very last um, performance that they ever did. Um, so I think it was, it was very hard for these young men who were touring with him, but perhaps less surprising for the heads of Daptone and others in the Dap Kings who had been through that before with Sharon. So we had mentioned Daptone Records earlier and about their friendship, but also there's a business relationship here. So how did how did Daptone Records handle this going forward? What was their creative direction, and how were they able to find new audiences, losing their two biggest acts um, so close together? It was a challenge, and um, in my reporting for this book and for articles prior, um, I asked them if they had like a contingency plan for this because hindsight, you think, well, these people are older; there's a chance. But they never really did. Um, they just had to pivot, essentially. They took on more studio projects. Um, other people left for other opportunities. Um, 
Daptone put out a posthumous album for Sharon, um, of Sharon's um, that was very well received, and it came out a year after her passing. There was a posthumous um, Charles record that uh, was also pretty well received. But all of these things are very difficult for the um, for the folks at the label to put together. Um, they're mourning their friends, but also have to keep up um, a business and, in a sense, keep up appearances, right? Um, the appearance that, like, this label isn't totally going to go under. Um, at the same time, they also lost two other very important people. Um, and somebody I forgot to mention um, earlier in the, that first, like, 10 years of Daptone, um, Naomi Shelton um, of Naomi Shelton and the Gospel Queens. Um, she was foundational for them as well. Um, their band leader, um, uh, Cliff Driver, uh, passed away in 2016 as well. Naomi would pass away, I, I believe it was uh, last year or the year before. Um, and also in 2016, Dan Klein, who is the singer of Daptone's first rock steady band, Frighteners, died of ALS um, in his early 30s. And that record came out just months after he died. So Daptone, I think, fortunately, because they were so prolific, had a lot of stuff in the can that they could put out after all of these passings. But um, it was not an easy going for them. So I want to talk about one quote in your book. And I thought it was an incredible thing that you wrote in here. I, I absolutely loved it. Uh, in your book, you say, regardless of the message, soul music is fundamentally political and the mere presence of daptone singers, most of whom were middle-aged, black, and performing for audiences who might not share their experience, was in itself a progressive statement. And I know we talked about earlier uh, Gabe and some of the other band members and foundational people in daptone's history are white. There was the skepticism of Sharon about being around these white people. And even when we talk about how soul music was permeating in these subcultures, there's going to be a lot of gatekeeping and a lot of white gatekeeping from people who can actually af uh, you know, afford the time and money to find these records. Uh, so share with us more about how Daptone contributed and addressed representation and perhaps some of the, critici how, the criticisms as, as well. Sure. Um, well, I'm really glad that you like that sentence. Thank you. Um, and... I, I think this is a really important topic because the people, the two heads of this label are white Jewish men. Um, their singers are black um, almost across the board. Um, so I, I don't know how cognizant they were of, of race um, in those early days. And I know that Sharon certainly didn't like to talk about it that much. I think that, Generally, they had this idea that people were people and that there was a general level of respect for each other and each other's backgrounds within the band um, so that it wasn't so much of an issue. However, um, the audience for these records or at these shows is not necessarily um, it's it's it's. it's it's pretty white. Um, it could be very homogenous, especially at the beginning of, of their run. Even though Daptone's audience, at least by glance at an average so, is probably whiter than one would like to see, 
Um, obviously, diversity is um, is a really important thing. I think that they did the best that they could do by trying to honor their performers, honor the history of soul music, and talk about it widely. Um, they probably could have done more, especially when we're looking at this from the lens of 2022 and after Black Lives Matter. I would be very curious um, how Sharon would have responded to um, to this movement and how Charles would as well. Um, but I think that by being advocates for this music, they um, were taking a step towards um, inclusivity. Um, I think it's I think it's really important, and I think that these are issues that we really need to examine um, and things that I. I enjoy thinking about, even if they're difficult. Um, and frankly, I don't know if it's my place as a white woman to be like, this is what Daptone should have done, you know? Um, nor do I need to put that burden on a Black reader or a Black listener um, or just any listener of color to be like, this is what um, Daptone should have done. I think that it is the responsibility of a good artist to reflect the times that they're in. And even if a lot of Daptone's songs were sort of apolitical on the surface, they do have a deeper political resonance um, in some of their lyrics and just the fact that like, we're idolizing, I was idolizing for sure, um, a black woman in her sixties who is just laying the stage to waste. Um, that said, I mean, within the soul scene, Daptone is very closed. Um, and, you know, that could lead to a certain amount of gatekeeping, gatekeeping by white men. Um, I, I don't really know a lot of black, like, heads of labels within this scene. Um, so, um, if, if we're, we're talking about gatekeeping, um, that's something to consider. Um, and one last thing about this. Um, the next generation of soul singers is, and, and soul groups, I think is, is widely more diverse as well, um, which is not to make light of the fact that the Dap Kings were, they had Latino members, they had white members, they had Jewish members, they had black members, they had members who were indigenous. Like, um, you know, it's complicated. <laughs> One criticism of Daptone Records is that while it was inventive, their efforts didn't embody the revolutionary spirit of the 1960s and rather aped convention. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think that no music exists in a vacuum. Um, and it is impossible to make this music and not be referential to something, even if it is conventional. Um, I think certain things are, could, could be like a little schlocky, but overall I disagree with that sentiment entirely. Um, I could name some groups that I think are aping convention and are very hokey um, that are like in this next generation or 0.5 generation of um, soul artists, but to be diplomatic, 
that will not. They are not Daptone bands, though. Well, let's talk about the next generation of Daptone bands. So the Daptone Records 20th anniversary came along during the COVID-19 pandemic. Where is Daptone now as it enters into its third decade and what is next for them? So Daptone, um, I found out recently, is closing up its Bushwick shop because um, I, I, I believe anyway, um, because Gabe Roth lives in California and has a wonderful studio out there where he's recording a lot of bands, mostly sweet soul groups on his Penrose imprint. Um, uh, Neil Sugarman lives in Switzerland. Um, and I think that in New York, there is not as much going on for the label. However, um, in the next generation of Daptone, they're continuing to put out um, music from some of their existing artists. I don't know how much of this is public yet. Um, and their next big release is from a group that's based in San Diego called the Sacred Souls. They're a trio um, that are putting out this sort of um, mid 60s, um, mid to like slow tempo soul music, love songs. Um, and that album will come out in uh, on August 28th. Um, and I plan to write about it for Variety of Sources, so stay tuned. I look forward to reading it. Thanks, yeah. Um, and those those people are, the, the Sacred Souls are part of a larger scene um, dedicated to sweet soul music as well, which um, I necessarily wouldn't have thought was the next uh, foray in soul music, but here we are, and it's like a really lovely thing. You know, soul music continues to live, and it's going to go through more revivals, and that's incredibly exciting. I agree. And I mean, I think I think it's here to stay. Um and if the past 60 years have taught us anything, that's not a not exactly a far out prediction. Well, Jessica, this has been a great conversation and I had a lot of fun. Thank you for joining me today. Likewise, Bradley. Thank you so much for taking the time. Absolutely. And may I just add a personal here how much I, I loved this book, just being a fan of Daptone Records and uh, to convey my appreciation for you for overcoming the challenge of being the first to comprehensively document this indie label. I'm sure it wasn't easy and it came out um, just spectacularly. Thank you so much. That, re that really means a lot to me, truly. My name is Bradley Morgan and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest today, Jessica Lipsky. Her book is It Ain't Retro, Daptone Records and the 21st Century Soul Revolution and is published by Jawbone Press. <laughs>